Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 88, The Wreck of the Mary O'Hara. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss the 1941 wreck of the fishing schooner Mary O'Hara. At least 18 sailors died in the ice-cold water of Boston Harbor while they were almost in sight of their own homes. At the time, headlines called it Boston Harbor's worst disaster. But before we talk about sailors and shipwrecks, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Because this week's episode is about a nautical disaster, we want to stick with that theme for our featured historic site. Down in Hull, a small museum preserves the memory of the U.S. Life-Saving Service. Before it was merged with the Revenue Cutter Service to form the U.S. Coast Guard, the Life-Saving Service was made up of brave men who were stationed along the nation's coast and prepared to spring into action when a ship became distressed. The Hull Life-Saving Museum is located in the former Point Allerton Life-Saving Station, which was built in 1889 to watch the tides for ships in trouble. The wooden station housed a dormitory for the crews who manned it, an observation tower to scan the horizon, and a boathouse where their Nantasket surfboats were housed. When a passing ship foundered in a gale, the crews would rush a surfboat to the water and row into the teeth of the storm to rescue the unlucky sailors. Construction of the life-saving station was inspired by the Great Storm of November 1888, when volunteers from Hull struggled to aid crews of six different schooners that ran aground within sight of Point Allerton. One surfboat was completely wrecked on the rocks, though both the crew of the boat and the sailors they rescued made it to shore. Another surfboat crew had to row six and a half miles to rescue seven sailors, an exhausting effort that capped off 36 hours of nonstop rescue operations that saved at least 29 lives. Having demonstrated the value of a life-saving station on Point Allerton, it would operate from 1889 until 1927, when its crews made their last rescue. After the five-masted schooner Nancy ran aground on Nantasket Beach in a storm, the surfboat Nantasket rowed out and ferried her crew to safety. It was the last time a surfboat was used for a rescue on Boston Harbor before more modern equipment replaced them. The life-saving station, now a Coast Guard station, continued in service until 1978, when it was replaced by the current Pemberton Point Coast Guard station. Today, the old life-saving station's wooden observation tower is the perfect vantage point to view Boston Light, while the boathouse is home to the museum's collection. View logbooks, photographs, and diary entries from the station's most amazing rescues, as well as period life-saving equipment like a surfboat or a breeches buoy, which acted like an emergency zipline for a ship foundering offshore, allowing the crew to slide to safety down a rope to solid ground. To get the full experience, take the Hingham and Hull Ferry from Long Wharf to Point Allerton and Hull. As the ferry docks, you'll see the more modern Coast Guard station that replaced the 1889 version on one side of the pier and the life-saving museum's rowing center on the other, where they train youth and adults on how to row in open water. We would usually direct you to take the 714 bus or walk a little over a mile past historic Fort Revere from the ferry dock to the life-saving museum. However, this summer there's a better option. On Saturdays and Sundays through the end of August, the town of Hull is operating a free trolley that will pick you up from the ferry dock on Pemberton Point and drop you at the doorstep of the Life-Saving Museum. 
The trolley runs 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. During July and August, the museum is open weekends 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and Monday through Thursday 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's closed on Monday holidays, admission is $5, and the ferry ride costs $9.25 each way. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a less tragic story from Boston Harbor. During World War II, the naval shipyards in Charlestown, South Boston, Hingham, and Quincy worked round the clock to produce the vessels that would eventually support Allied landings in France and North Africa, as well as grinding away Japanese forces in the Pacific. This summer, the National Park Service remembers the efforts of civilian workers in the Boston Naval Shipyard with a special walking tour called In the Yard, Boston Navy Yard in World War II. It celebrates the 200 ships civilian workers built in the shipyard, including 14 Fletcher-class destroyers. The tour meets at the large flagpole near Pier 1 in the Charlestown Navy Yard at 6.30 p.m. on August 3rd. It will last about 60 minutes and conclude with a special visit aboard the Cassin Young, a Fletcher-class destroyer identical to those that were built in Boston. Now it's time to turn to this week's main topic. Edward Rose Snow, the longtime historian and storyteller of Boston Harbor, introduces us to the ship at the center of this week's tale. The Mary E. O'Hara was a haddocker out of Gloucester. Thirteen of the men on board were Nova Scotians, one was from Newfoundland, and the other nine were New Englanders. A news report from 1941 gives us a little bit more. The Mary E. O'Hara, owned by O'Hara Brothers, Inc., was built in Essex in 1922. She was 92 feet long and 22 feet wide with an 11-foot draft. Interestingly, the Boston Public Library has a picture of the Mary O'Hara being constructed in the Essex shipyard in 1921 or 1922, which we'll link to in this week's show notes. In that photo, the hull is just taking shape, but when complete, the wooden vessel was rigged as a schooner with two masts and square sails. On January 21, 1941, the Mary O'Hara was sailing home after a successful fishing trip to George's Bank. The rich fishing grounds off George's Bank are located just 62 miles off the Massachusetts coast and form a rough oval about 150 miles long by 75 miles wide, which is larger than Massachusetts itself. The bank is a section of the North American continental shelf that was submerged when the seas rose after the last ice age about 12,000 years ago. The waters there are about 330 feet shallower than the Gulf of Maine to the north or the deep Atlantic waters to the south and east. Until modern overfishing thinned their numbers, rich schools of halibut, cod, and haddock called the banks home. And as you know, if you heard our podcast about the sacred cod, they've helped drive the Massachusetts economy since the earliest days of English colonization. A trip to the banks could last weeks, and fishing is a fickle profession. Once on the bank, the captain of the schooner would order the crew to launch their dories. They'd row the dories around schools of fish, towing long nets behind them. Then the nets would be drawn in onto the deck of the Mary O'Hara to sort and process the catch. Sometimes, the men would spend weeks on the banks and come home with nothing. Sometimes, they'd get a rich haul, but when they got back to Boston, 
they wouldn't be able to get a good price for the fish. In those cases, the crew would go home with all the fish they could carry, but little more than beer money in their pockets. This time, they were homeward bound with 50,000 pounds of fish in the hold and hopes for a favorable market in their hearts. Sometime after midnight on January 21st, the lights of Boston would have come into view. First the Custom House Tower, then the rest of the skyline, which was, of course, much lower back then. For many of the crew, Boston was home. And for some, home was East Boston, which was even closer. In the darkness of the outer harbor, three barges towed by an ocean-going tug were anchored waiting for morning. They were carrying a load of coal to Searsport, Maine, from either Norfolk, Virginia, or Philadelphia, depending on which source you believe. Lorraine Hines Lannis was the daughter of a former Mary O'Hara captain, and she left an account of that evening. There was snow falling that night, and there was wind as the Mary O'Hara entered the harbor in the vicinity of Boston Light. Stanley Connor was on watch, Gilbert Smith was at the wheel, and Fred Wilson was the captain on deck. The snow was blinding, and two men should have been on watch, not just one. With the storm swirling and the night dark, the Mary O'Hara was suddenly shaken by a collision. We have some of the details from a confused early news report on the accident. Within the outer harbor and inward bound with a cargo of 50,000 pounds of mixed fish, the Boston Dory trawler Mary E. O'Hara attempted to avoid a crash with the coal-laden barge from Philadelphia in tow of the seagoing tug Montrose. The helmsman of the fishermen succeeded, but the next minute he rammed the starboard quarter aft of the barge Winifred Sheridan, also coal-laden from Philadelphia, which the Montrose had just anchored and which survivors said was riding without lights. Members of the O'Hara's crew were standing watch on deck, but Lorraine Hines Luanis's account says that there was controversy over whether the crew on the barge was as attentive. The Winifred Sheridan crew said that they heard nothing, and their lights were burning and an anchor watch was being kept. But someone on the Mary E. O'Hara said there were no lights and also no watch, as they would have heard the impact. Another news report notes the condition of the Winifred Sheridan after the collision. Her starboard side was damaged, but she remained afloat. On board the Mary O'Hara, things were not going nearly as well the wooden schooner had rammed a steel-hulled barge at speed, with catastrophic results. The ship was taking on water rapidly, on a dark winter night, with snow swirling and ice encrusting the vessel. The captain knew he had just one chance to try to save his crew. An account from a Pittsburgh paper describes his decision. When the crash occurred, Captain Fred Wilson of Somerville made a desperate attempt to run his sinking ship into shallow water. The Mary O'Hara's bow was stove in, and he had to dodge a second barge before he could start his drive toward shore. From the crash site in the outer harbor, the closest visible land was Deer Island and Winthrop. Wilson fired up the schooner's diesel engine and set a course directly towards the lights of Winthrop at full speed. The article continues, The schooner was sinking rapidly, however, and grounded near Finn's Ledge, a quarter mile from the scene of the accident there was no time to launch the dories or put on lifebelts. 
I wasn't familiar with Finn's Ledge before, and I didn't have a Boston Harbor navigational chart at hand when I started writing this episode. Luckily, Edward Rose Snow could describe it for me. Finn's Ledge is halfway between Graves Light, the outermost lighthouse in Boston Harbor, and the Winthrop Water Tower. The water over the ledge is only about 40 feet deep, and that is where the Mary O'Hara grounded. By this time, it was three in the morning. According to Snow, the entire crew, except for Captain Wilson, the helmsman, and one other sailor, were below deck at the time of the collision, and almost all of the men who were down below were asleep in their bunks. According to Lorraine Hines Loannis, Clayton Hines occupied a bunk in the forepeak, and with the grinding crash, rushed scantily clad up to the deck above. Hines had a deep split in his scalp and was bleeding. A sailor named Gabriel Welsh confirms that account, saying, The first thing we know about it down below was when Hines rushed in and said, For God's sake, get out of here, men. We've struck something. The men who were down below had no time to dress or grab life belts or make any other emergency preparations. Some didn't even manage to get out of bed. The ship went down so quickly. Welsh said, Our ship was torn apart and she filled up so fast that a lot of the fellows didn't have a chance to get above decks. All who did ran for the masts and started to climb. Another initial news account from the Associated Press said that the barge Winifred Sheridan was damaged but afloat. Hours later, the barge Winifred Sheridan was found anchored a half-mile distant by Captain Lawrence Dunn, harbormaster, who reported she had suffered some damage to her starboard rail inside. However, the barge soon started taking on water, and before long, it too began to sink. According to a scuba diving website, the barge is now located about a half mile from Finn's Ledge in about 50 feet of water. As the Mary O'Hara began to settle lower in the water, her captain made one more desperate attempt to save the crew. The schooner carried a full complement of dories, those small boats that the crew used to manage the nets. However, they were useless at the time. We'll include a picture in this week's show notes to illustrate what a ship looked like after returning from a wintertime run to the banks. It won't be the Mary O'Hara, but a similar ship. You'll see that the ship itself isn't even visible, just the ice encrusting it, sometimes a foot thick or more. Edward Rose Snow relates Captain Wilson's last gambit. It had been impossible to use the dories, as they were buried under tons of ice. Just before the schooner foundered, Captain Fred Wilson tried to hack the grips holding the dories down, but the ice still held them to the deck. The captain hacked away until water reached his waist before he climbed up to the top lift. According to a news report from faraway Australia, after the crew had already climbed into the rigging, the dories, freed by the warmer water, drifted away. It was a cruel irony. As the water rose, the men who had made it out of the cabin had only one option. They began to climb. Even as icy waves began to lap over the deck, the ship remained more or less upright, and the two masts stood up out of the cold, dark water. One of the survivors said, Those who chose the foremast were out of luck, because it was soon underwater, and they went down. 
Some of the fellows who were with us in the mainmast couldn't hang on because of the cold. They dropped off one by one, yelling and praying. We were all yelling as loud as we could. The men on the mainmast hung on as best they could, as their fingers and toes turned numb, then began to actually freeze. They wrapped legs and arms through ice-encrusted spars and rigging, even though many were clad only in their underwear. One by one, as their strength failed or their numbed fingers relaxed their grip, they fell into the ocean below and slipped under the surface. The remaining men shouted goodbyes to their fellows. They shouted encouragement to one another. They shouted prayers. They shouted anything they could think of at the top of their lungs to try to attract the attention of one of the other ships they could hear passing by in the darkness. Finally, a boat approached. It was the North Star, captained by Lars Lund. Even as rescue seemed to be at hand, the tragedy continued. News accounts described some of the last casualties. Among those hanging on to the mainmast when the North Star hove into view was Chief Bosun John Sheehan of Gloucester. He sighted the ship first and shouted, Hang on! A boat is coming! Sailor Welsh yelled back, Hang on yourself! I'm sure we'll be rescued! Then the North Star came alongside, Mr. Welsh said, and when I looked again, Johnny was gone. It may be romantic to say that the captain always goes down with the ship, but in many cases, that's just not how it happens. In this case, however, the old saying held true, as recounted by the Associated Press. Last of those to fall from the rigging into the sea, the rescued men said, was their skipper, Captain Fred Wilson of Somerville. The remainder of the crew had now been clutching the rigging, in their underwear, in a wind-whipped snowstorm, for over two and a half hours. There were Coast Guard stations, the legacy of the U.S. Life-Saving Service, in Hull, Boston, and Nahant, but there had been no time to send a distress signal. Edward Rowe Snow describes how the last survivors were rescued. Captain Lars Lund, the master of the rescue vessel North Star, estimated that the O'Hara sank about 3 a.m., and that he sighted the masts at about 5.40 a.m., The thermometer was 12 above zero at the time. With nothing but the desperate men's cries to go on, Lund dropped his engines almost to an idle and crept forward through the snow. He had to carefully follow the sounds of the shouting, but at the same time not risk ramming the already distressed vessel. Snow continues, The shouts of the men first attracted his attention, then he saw dimly the masts of the sunken ship. With his engines idling, he slid the North Star up alongside and took off the five survivors, Gabriel Welsh, Frank Silva, Cecil Crowell, Cecil Larkin, and Stanley Conrad. Lund said afterwards that if one of the other three vessels which had passed the wreck earlier that bitter morning had heard the cries and stopped, many others, and possibly all those who had later perished, would have been saved. Lorraine Hines Luanis explains how the last survivor from the Mary O'Hara was found and brought on board the North Star. Patrick Eudis was the mate on the North Star, and he said he only heard a thump-thump. The crew on the North Star were urging him to come back on board, as they said there were only ghosts on her by now. It seemed to be coming from an upside-down dory that had now broken free and was floating on top of the water. 
Patty turned the dory over and underneath was Cecil Larkin, who had fallen out of the rigging and his head was being held above water by a wire under his chin. Wire held light bulbs that were strung through the rigging for night work. However, an AP report from the time carries a different account of the rescue of the last survivor. Cecil Crowell of Nova Scotia was helpless and unable to move from his perch, so a dory was put overside and three members of the North Star's crew rescued him. As daylight dawned over Boston Harbor, the true extent of the tragedy began to take shape. The Associated Press reported, Soon after noon, a Coast Guard plane radioed headquarters that several bodies, four dories, and a considerable amount of wreckage was washed up on the outermost island of the Brewster Group near Graves Light. The cutter, Algonqua, was rushed to the spot under forced draft. Another news report tells how confusion reigned as rescue boats began arriving at the wreck site only to find it abandoned. Scores of craft raced to the scene, but found only four feet of the main mast of the Mary O'Hara above the water. Meanwhile, the North Star was bringing the five survivors, all in critical condition with frozen hands and legs, into Fish Pier for quick transfer to City Hospital. The rescued were Gabriel Welsh of East Boston, Frank Silva of South Boston, Stanley Conrad of Cambridge, formerly Lunenburg County, Cecil Crowell of Port Latour, Shelburne County, Nova Scotia, and Cecil Larkin of East Pubnico, Nova Scotia. Most news reports about the shipwreck say that there were 23 crew members aboard at the time of the collision, of whom 18 died of drowning or exposure. In a 1943 book about Boston Harbor shipwrecks, Edward Rowe Snow insists that 19 men died. Either way, every account says that it was the most deadly shipwreck in Boston history and the most deadly wreck among the Massachusetts fishing fleet for decades. Unfortunately, such a record is meant to be broken. By the time Snow wrote another book about Boston Harbor in 1951, he counted the Mary O'Hara as only the third worst in history. In only a decade, two more terrible wrecks had outpaced the tragedy of the Mary O'Hara. To learn more about the Mary O'Hara and shipwrecks on Boston Harbor, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 088. We'll have links to several newspaper accounts of the wreck of the Mary O'Hara, as well as Edward Rose Snow's book Storms and Shipwrecks of New England, and a newsletter with Lorraine Hines Luanis's account of the wreck. We'll have a photo of the Mary O'Hara being built, as well as photos that show her masts just barely poking up above the waves after the wreck. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. It's been a while since we've shared listener feedback, so here are a few things you've been saying about us online. Friend of the show, Derek L., listened to our episode about the Tent City protest and its references to the experience of urban renewal in the West End. He wrote in to say, Fans who want to see more of the West End should check out Leonard Nimoy's Boston. Star Trek gets a brief mention, but it's much more about his childhood in the pre-renewal West End. Boston by Foot tour guide Michelle S. recently listened to a podcast from last February as part of her research for a women's history tour and said, Also, 
Your podcast on Rebecca Lee Crumpler was excellent. She's on the tour. Listener Mark got punny after listening to our episode about the theft of the sacred cod from the State House, saying, One Commonwealth under cod. Laura Innes, the talented artist behind the Revolutionary War webcomic The Dreamer and the comic series Winona Earp, retweeted our Sacred Cod episode with a laughing emoji and the words, Sacred Cod. But it was all caps, so we'll take it. And after our recent episode about Boston's first Pride celebration, Suzanne said, Missed it during Pride Week, but Hub History has a good podcast about the first Boston Pride Parade in 1971. Hashtag Wicked Proud. And Kate said, I just finished listening. So good. It led me down a rabbit hole of researching the old bars and stories of gay life in the city over the past century. Thank you. No, thank you, Kate. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.